Let's pray. God, we, we just thank you so much for this day, and, and I thank you for this group of people and for the time that we have to just come together and think about you and hear from you and reflect on who you were and who you are and who you will be. And God, I just pray that your spirit would move among us, that uh, in these moments where perhaps darkness threatens to overrun some of us, that you would help us to continue to walk in the light. Um, we pray, praise you for your promise to be near to us. Now help us be near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to uh, <clears throat> begin today by asking you to imagine, oops, asking you to imagine that you are a Christian in the year 1401. Uh, that may be a little bit difficult to, uh, to appreciate, so I'm going to give you some circumstances, okay? First, first circumstance is this. You are most likely illiterate, okay? So you can't read. Uh, second circumstance is this, that the Bible is mostly, almost unanimously uh, printed in Latin. So not only can you not read whatever your language is, but you certainly can't read Latin. Uh, now, <clears throat> circumstance number three, which really complicates things, is that typically the priest in your church will only preach from and read from that Latin Bible and preach in Latin, read in Latin. And so uh, you come to church. Imagine you are coming to this church, and I open up my mouth today, and I pray in Latin, and then I deliver my sermon in Latin. Uh, and you'd, you know, maybe some of you would hear me say something uh, that's sounded like domino, and some of you would think pizza, and others of you would think uh, Jesus or God. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But that was, that was part of this time period. Now, here's some other really interesting things that happened. So everybody's Catholic at this point in the year 1401, okay? So the hierarchy of the Catholic Church is in many ways the hierarchy of Europe, okay? The governors are, are uh, often appointed or um, really given power because of their influence in the Catholic Church. And so at this time, there's uh, not just one pope, though, okay? At this time in the year 1401, there are two popes. Okay, there's a pope in France and there's a pope in Rome, and they have both excommunicated one another from the church. And so your particular uh, king or governor decides for you which kind of Catholic you are. Are you a French Catholic or are you a Roman Catholic? So actually right around this time, though, in 1401, they gather in uh, the Roman town uh, or the Italian town, I guess now, of Pisa, okay, Leaning Tower uh, place. And they decide that they're going to fix this problem of having two popes. And so they appoint a third pope. <clears throat> and the other two popes refuse to step down. So now you have three popes. You have a Roman pope, a French pope, and a Pisan pope. Okay? <clears throat> and, uh, and you... <laughs> All you know is you believe in Jesus. And you come to church. And you come because you're scared to death not to come. You come because you know that Jesus is working in your life. You know that you believe in him and you don't understand any of it. Here's another thing that is really prominent in the year 1401. It's called simony. Okay, Simony is named after uh, a man named Simon from the book of Acts. And Simon wanted to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter. Okay, 
And Peter basically told him, because you thought you could buy something from God that was actually a free gift, I don't know exactly what he says to him, but it's not very uplifting. <laughs> it's, you can look it up, but it's, uh, it's something along the lines of, bad idea, you're in trouble now. Um, so simony is the practice that was really prominent in uh, this time period of purchasing purchasing your position in a church. Okay, so a bishop maybe would not be like a highly trained, passionate Christian. It might be a rich guy who thought, hey, I can expand my land by buying uh, the opportunity to be, to be bishop. Okay, now that's, imagine, imagine that uh, being the pastor of River Street was a whole lot more um, influential and illustrious than it is. And that I pooled all my money so that I could purchase being your pastor. You didn't get to vote. Uh, you didn't get to decide. This is the only church that you get to go to. And I have purchased it from you. Now, here's what I do after I purchase it from you. Since I don't care about church or Jesus or anything like that, I purchase it from you. And then I become what is called an absent priest. I uh, get some, some other guy who uh, is not so lucky to do all the preaching, who doesn't really even know Latin, perhaps. That's, been ha that's known to happen in this day and age. Doesn't even know Latin. So he gets up here and he gives you a sermon that is gibberish. And you don't know. <laughs> I mean, what is, you don't know any better, right? I wouldn't know any better. This is super prevalent. Okay, oh, another thing that happens all the time in this time period is that these bishops and priests who would purchase uh, purchase their, their posts. Um, they would often be absent, but the other thing that they would do is they would have mistresses who would live in their palaces with them because most bishops lived in palaces. They would basically have harems. So pastors, priests, are not seen in a very good light. They are uh, more feudal lords than they are shepherds of God's people. This is the year 1401. <clears throat> this is craziness. Uh, everybody knows it has to change. Everyone knows that the church is not what it should be. It cannot go on like this much longer. So enter a guy named Jan Hus, who is from uh, the modern-day Czech Republic, but he was called um, Bohemian, uh, not related at all to Bohemian Rhapsody, for those of you who maybe went there. Um, so he is, uh, he's Bohemian, he lives in the city of Prague, and he, uh, there's a new church that started in the city of Prague in the year 1491, and it preaches, it's the church is planted, it's like the hip new church plant, right? Uh, it's called the Bethlehem Chapel, uh, which is, you know, not that far afield from some of our, our new church plant names, or like Journey, or uh, I don't know, Adventure, or... Um, I don't know, some other thing. But this is it. This is, this is the cool people church now. Uh, Bethlehem Chapel, 1491, started off with the idea that they're going to preach and read, uh, read everything that they can read in the regular language of the people, in the Czech language. Okay, so 1401, this church is kind of accelerating and growing and, and has lasted. Uh, and in 1401, Jan Hus becomes its pastor. And in 1401, he starts to preach some pretty radical stuff. He uh, starts off by saying, 
that this simony thing is just nothing other than sin, which is a pretty big deal because his bishop, okay, so the guy that's his boss, everybody knows that at the age of 25, he purchased his spot as the bishop of Prague, the bishop of, of this region around the, the city of Prague. And so uh, he preaches that this is nothing other than sin and corruption. He calls <laughs> his favorite name for uh, the priests of the day is the Lord's fat ones, um, because they are getting the Lord's fat ones, because they're getting fat off of the tithes and off of the offerings and off of, they are getting not just physically large, but spiritually overweight and uh, spiritually unhealthy. And he, so he's, he's not a, um, not given to diplomatic um, discourse. Uh, <laughs> he also uh, preaches uh, after he does, okay, so after he does that, he, uh, <clears throat> He rubs this bishop the wrong way, obviously, by saying that he came into his position through nothing other than sin and heresy. Uh, and, and so that guy appeals to the pope of the time. Remember, there are three popes, so he appeals to one of them. Uh, and that one pope says that uh, John, Jan Hus is not allowed to preach anymore. So Jan Hus thinks to himself, now wait a second, I'm not allowed to preach anymore. I'm not so sure I believe that I can do that. And so Jan Hus sits down, and after months of soul-searching, he says to himself, No, actually, an unworthy pope is not to be obeyed. If a pope wants me to shut up when I'm preaching nothing but the Word of God, I will not stop. <laughs> so he continues, and the pope, uh, the pope excommunicates him for the first time. Uh, won't be the last. He, uh, he says, and he develops this idea that an unworthy pope is not to be obeyed. You have to remember, this is a crazy idea in the year 1401. People thought that the pope was um, the final authority for Christian living, the final interpreter of, uh, of Christian doctrine. And so they, they thought that to be out of line with the pope was to be out of line with Jesus. So to go against the Pope in that day and age, they really associated that with, with leaving the grace of God. And Jan says and starts to preach, and he's become really popular by now. He starts to preach, no, an unworthy Pope is not to be obeyed. The Bible is the final authority for Christian living. The Bible is the final authority for Christian living. And uh, he starts to preach and teach these things, and, uh, and he just keeps going. And before long, he's got pretty much all of what we would consider the Czech Republic or, or Bohemia at the time in his corner. He also then uh, is protected, okay? They, they protect him. The king, of, uh, the king of, of Bohemia protects him, and he's the queen in particular is a really big fan of him. And so he's, he's very protected, uh, and he continues to minister for, for years until the Pope decides that he's going to sell indulgences. Okay, indulgences were, at the time, you could purchase less time for yourself or a family member in purgatory. Purgatory was this idea that nobody got to go straight to heaven, that you had to go to purgatory to be purged of your sins, and then after you were purged, then you could go to heaven, okay? That's this real, like, big, complicated kind of worldview. But uh, <clears throat> Jan says that he, uh, that indulgences is a form of undoing the authority of God. 
Okay, he says it is usurping God's authority to sell forgiveness because that belongs to him and to him alone. We don't uh, sell indulgences anymore. We don't sell forgiveness. But sometimes we too get in the way of that process and say, maybe I get to decide whether someone is forgiven or not. Maybe I get to decide whether they come in or go out. And we, we, we become that gatekeeper of God's forgiveness when, when what we do is judgment is left to the son and to the son alone, right? And so we usurp his power. Even though we don't sell indulgences, we are prone to the same kind of sin. Human nature doesn't change all that much in history. And so when he does that, he's, uh, the people are, are, are in love with him. They're following him. They, they think he's really preaching the truth. But the king feels as though he can now, no longer support Jan Hus. And so he withdraws his protection from Jan Hus and he races out into exile to live in the countryside to hide. And at the time, uh, he hides for, for a while. And then in the year 1415, he is invited to what's called the Council of Constance to come. And, and he believes the, uh, the emperor is the one who invites him. Okay, The emperor invites him and the emperor says, Hey, I will, I will grant you safe conduct on, on the honor of my word, on the honor of my title. I grant you safe conduct to come to this council of Constance and defend your case before this council. Okay. And Jan says, that's great because I really believe if anybody would just give me a chance and they would listen to me, they would, they would believe what I have to say. Cause I don't really think I'm preaching anything that crazy. If you just look at what scripture has scripture says. And so he decides to go. He gets there and he realizes that he is nothing more than a little cog in a very big political machine. Okay, The emperor realizes within moments that everybody there hates Jan Hus and they want him dead. And so he delivers him to one of these three popes who puts him immediately into a prison. In the prison they say, oh, you need to recant all of your heresies. And Jan says, I would be happy to recant any of my heresies so long as you could show me that they are indeed heresies. And they beat him and they leave him alone in the, uh, the cell. He is in the cell for more than two months. He's actually moved around from different places. The pope who originally put him in there is run out of town and fired, if you can be, as a pope exactly however that happens. And, uh, and the council brings him again before them and they say, recant of your heresies. And we will uh, we'll let you go back to the Czech Republic. And he says again, just give me the chance to explain that they are not heresies. And he says, if I, if I say that something I've said is a heresy, then you're going to condemn my entire country, all of Bohemia. And I know what you will do. I will know that you will raise an army and you will go and fight them. So I, not just for my sake, but for my people's sake, I cannot say, I cannot recant against things. And you're not giving me even a chance to explain. But the council didn't want that. They didn't want him to explain. And so he's sent back to his, his cell. This is uh, June 5th, and he writes a bunch of letters because he thinks he's going to die the next day. But a whole lot of other political things happen, and he stays in the cell for a whole other month. Okay, whole other month he's just left there to, to rot. Until finally he is led, uh, led out one more time. This time he's in his, uh, his priestly garments, and they rip the priestly garments off of him. And they shave his head and they put a, a crown on his head and they paint demons on the crown. 
And they give him one last chance to recant. And he says no. And so they lead him out into the square and they burn him at the stake. Now, before he's burned, they give him a chance to speak. And this is what he says. Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And then they set the blaze and he begins to pray for them while he burns. To pray for their eyes to be opened. To pray for God's forgiveness to come upon them. And then after he's done praying, he's still burning, he begins to recite from the Psalms, calmly, quietly. The, uh, the council, uh, just as an aside, the, uh, <clears throat> Jan Hus had basically learned a lot of what he believed in by reading from a guy named John Wycliffe. Okay, John Wycliffe dies in the 1380s in, uh, around Oxford in England. And uh, <clears throat> this council gets so inflamed about Wycliffe and his doctrines, and they blame Wycliffe for Jan Hus. And so they actually send a delegation to Oxford, and they dig up the bones of John Wycliffe. And they bring his bones to Constance, and they burn his bones at the stake. Um, <laughs> a touch over the top, I'd say. <laughs> they... Uh, so this, this moment, this, this encounter in history, this time in history, you've got a man who, uh, by the name of Jan Hus, who seems to stand firm, who seems to ignite something. Really, the Reformation, the process of kind of breaking away from the Catholic Church and some of these doctrines that Hus opposed, won't happen for another hundred years. But in Bohemia... Everything that he taught remains for that whole hundred years. The Catholic Church at the time, the popes, they raised three crusades against the Bohemians. One of them, there were 120,000 soldiers marching against a, an army of 15,000 Bohemians. And they, their rallying cry was, remember Jan Hus. And they defeated that 120,000 strong army. And they did it three different times. And so the, what we would consider some of these basics of Christian doctrine, some of these basics of Christian teachings, basic Christian truths, there was only this one pocket in Europe that believed them for that hundred years because of Jan Hus and his influence. So we've been talking about this idea that the, the work of the Spirit, that when Jesus talks about what the Spirit is going to come and do and what the Spirit does in the book of Acts is he builds his church. He stirs in the hearts of believers. He teaches them. He comforts them. He advocates on their behalf. And he builds the church. Here in the year 1415, what I would have to say is that the Spirit is deeply and heavily at work in the life of Jan Hus. In the spirit of Jan Hus, the Spirit is breaking through into a time of darkness. This passage that we read earlier from the book of John where, where Jesus says, Walk in the light now. So that the darkness does not overcome you. Darkness comes. If you're, I mean, this is so dark, they actually call the period the dark ages, right? Like, you look back on it, and it is just dark and bleak for a thousand years. 
And Jan Hus comes just at the end of this period, and he begins to bring some of that spirit's light piercing, breaking through, and he somehow finds a way to walk in the light in the midst of deep darkness. How did he do that? How did Jan continue to walk in the light even when the darkness surrounded him? That is the question of the day. I've told you before that um, I think when I think about this sermon series, I'm telling you Jan Hus's story, but I'm really telling you the spirit story. I'm really telling you the story of the spirit breaking through. I'm really telling you the story of the faithfulness of God's spirit to move and to breathe and to live inside those who are willing to let that happen. Uh, you notice that every, every week when I've done kind of a stained glass window picture thing, um, they all have these halos, but the halos are not their own. The gold doesn't represent their own glory or their own character. It represents the spirit of Christ breaking through their lives. Walking in light in the midst of tremendous darkness. I think that what Jan Hus did, you know, when he when I read, you can read some of his letters that he wrote in, in jail, in prison, and they're they're not very long, so if you if you're interested in reading them, I'll, I'll just ask me and I can send you the links to them. Um, but they're powerful. They're filled with uh, deep concern for the people he's writing with, his friends back in Bohemia. They're filled with deep concern for the souls and the the eternal destiny of those who are persecuting him. They are filled deeply with a desire to be steadfast in his faith and his convictions on behalf of Christ. They're filled with a passion for walking in the light in the midst of the darkness. He talks in there, in one of them in particular, he talks about how dark it really has gotten. And he talks about feeling like he's alone with his sin in this cell. And he says to, he says, you remember in in quite a few places in the New Testament, it says something along the lines of consider it joy when you're being persecuted. And we all, perhaps, if you're like me, I've never really been persecuted. And when I've been sort of many persecuted, joy was not the first thing on my mind. Joy was not the first emotion that I felt when I've had, I've run up against resistance to my faith. But John write, or Jan writes about how he's in the cell and he's grateful that God has given him this time to suffer and to reflect on the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. He's grateful for how Jesus has allowed him to think and reflect and pray about the sin in his life. He's grateful for this time of struggle. So how did he do it? How did he manage to walk in the light when darkness threatened to overrun him for these two and a half, three months that he spent in a prison? I got a text message in the middle of church. That doesn't happen very often. Just uh, put that on. Uh, Finally... This is, uh, this is from Philippians, right? Chapter 4. And in this passage in uh, Philippians 4, the, the people of Philippi, the Christians in Philippi, 
are, are living in a very similar sort of darkness as Jan Hus was living in. This, this sense of persecution is just this cloud that, that just envelops them, that sort of hangs in the background of the letter. And, John, and Paul writes to them, and he writes about how do you get peace. And the first part that he says in the midst of this struggle, how can you get peace? The first thing he says is pray and pray without ending, and God will give you this surpassing peace. I have always had that preached to me since I was a little boy, that in rough times, if you want to make it through, you need to pray. But we often forget that there's a second piece to that advice of this hard time. And I think it's, it's equally important, and it breaks through Jan Hus's life, and it's this. Paul says, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. In other words, think about the character of God. Fill your mind and heart with the character of Jesus. Fix, or another way to put it would be, toss off the sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So if you are in the midst of darkness, do what Jan did. Fix your heart on the character of Christ. Don't just pray for God's help. Pray for God's character. Pray for his peace and his patience and his kindness and his gentleness and his goodness and his justice and his purity and his pleasingness and his commendability and his excellence. Pray for such things. Because when we fix our eyes on the character of Christ and we offer ourselves up and ask for the spirit of him to live in us, we can even stare down the thought of going to a stake. Most of our problems are not quite that drastic, not quite that dramatic. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe it's heartache. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's this or it's that. But if it's good enough for Jan Hus to rot in a cell with, knowing that he's gonna, where he's going to end up, knowing that the flames of the stake are before him, the character of Christ in your mind is good enough for your darkness. The Spirit of God that led Jan Hus to be steadfast and to lean into the character of Christ even while he was burning, that Spirit is good enough for you and for your darkness too. And so that when we live in him and when we set our mind, when we pray to him and we set our mind on him and who he is, it allows us to walk in the light now so that the darkness may not overtake us. The Greek words up here um, on the, the stained glass window are the, are the Greek of that. So that the darkness might not overtake you. I'm going to invite you during the next couple of songs, um, as I've done in the past, please come up and color, uh, color a window pane. Fill it with, you, you can write um, whatever you would like to write. If, you, if it so desire, write a note to God. Ask him for a certain characteristic that you're lacking. Ask him for uh, a certain piece of his character that would do you some real good in your darkness. Or maybe you're not in darkness right now. Maybe things are really good. Praise him for how he did guide you through the darkness. Praise him for the characteristics that did help you 
in the darkness. Either way, we all have some way to respond to him today. And I think sometimes it can be very helpful to do it in a concrete sort of way. So I invite you to do that during the next couple of songs. And remember that even in the darkness or in the night, his character and his spirit are good enough. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I, I realize that I, um, I cannot face my darkness alone. I have certainly learned that very thoroughly over and over and over and over again, that I need you and I need these people. I need these brothers and sisters in my darkness. I am not strong enough to give myself my own peace and my own light. I need you and your people and your spirit God, may we, as we struggle and wrestle for those of us who are in darkness, may we find ways to put your character in our path, in our eyes' gaze. May we find a way to fix our eyes, not on the things that are entangling us, but on you and your character and your life and your spirit. God, may the example and story of Jan Hus and your spirit's work through and in him Move us to live and to walk in the light and to disregard, to disregard the taunts and the threats of the darkness. Help us help each other in this. Make us a place where we help one another in the midst of the darkness. And we praise you together for your goodness and your steadfastness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.